Well, hello, and welcome to this audio commentary on Goodfellas, the 1990 movie directed by Martin Scorsese. My name's Rob Caravaggio, robcaravaggio.blogspot.com, and if you'd like to synchronize your copy of Goodfellas to this audio commentary, we'll give you a countdown in just a moment that will help you do that. In the meantime, what you can do is locate the very start of the movie. There is a Warner Brothers uh, title card or title screen or logo that comes just before the beginning of the film proper. When that Warner Brothers logo fades to black, hit pause on your DVD, Blu-ray, or what have you, so that you have the black frozen on your screen, and that will allow us to all hit play together and watch the movie in perfect synchronized harmony. All right, if you're queued up to the right spot, just as the Warner Brothers logo has faded to black, let's all hit play together in three seconds. Three, two, one, play. If you have the sound off uh, on the film, you uh, might still uh, recall uh, that um, the way the uh, credits are racing by the screen like that is accompanied by a sound mix, a a sound of uh, cars sort of speeding by on a road. Uh, Vroom, vroom, that sort of thing. There you have the, this film is based on a true story uh, disclaimer, so to speak. And uh, I remember the first time I saw the movie, uh, the first time I saw it uh, was just as it hit theaters in 1990, and uh, I remember thinking, what, I thought this was supposed to be a gangster movie, what's that sound mix for? Uh, Or what's that sound of a car going by for? And then, of course, you see this scene here with our three principal characters in a car. Scorsese deliberately uh, chose to begin in the middle of the movie and play with chronology. So this scene that we have here of De Niro, Leota, and Pesci um, killing Billy Bats, the Billy Bats incident, will uh, sort of stick out to us as the beginning of the movie. It, it, we won't know for a long time what this is about or what's going on as Leota opens the trunk there. But it will become clear in the beginning of the movie, and unlike the book Wise Guy, and I'll talk a little bit about how Pelegi and Scorsese developed the screenplay from the book by Nicholas Pelegi, Wise Guy, Uh, but uh, the book is a straight chronology, and and Scorsese's playing with time, and and there's the first of our many freeze frames with that wonderful voiceover by Leota. And the title of the movie, Goodfellas, is now on the screen. And the producer credit for Barbara DeFina. There's Pelegi's credit. Anyway, um, that opening scene is really uh, one of the favorite things that directors and uh, on the special edition DVD I have, you have a great many directors and people um, talking about how this movie influenced them. And that's one of the things they talk about is 
Um, just how that opening scene establishes not just that we're playing with chronology, uh, but it also introduces us to the the essence of our three principal characters the 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 brutality the casualness and and the there's an absurd quality to that opening um you know they're they're driving along and the the matter of factly uh pesci says what the hell is that and there's a surrealness to their lives that i think uh, this movie captures a surrealness to being a gangster that certainly the sopranos captured and speaking of the sopranos here comes tony sirico uh, as we see the car bounce there, that's from the book, and I'll I'll point out uh, a couple of things like that. Or oh, that's not Tony Sirico. Here's Tony. Here's uh, Polly Walnuts. Um, there's Tuddy, uh, uh, played by an actor named Frank DeLeo. Um, I love this. Uh, now this is the how the book Goodfellas starts. So you notice that the movie, uh, as I said, doesn't start where the book starts, and I'll uh, describe a little bit about that in a sec. But um, all of the imagery here and all the little details are pulled from Pileggi's book. And uh, the author, Nick Pileggi, worked with Scorsese on, uh, I believe, more than 10 drafts of the screenplay before they got to the, the shooting script. And Scorsese convinced him to uh, allow him to make a movie that that um, uses voiceover in this way and, and, and plays with chronology so that we really have the sense of this first-person narrative, this insider's account. The scene that just passed of Henry observing the uh, gangsters at the cab stand is very, very important. There's some handheld stuff. Um, it's very, very important in the book, the, the, the way it seduces him. I, I love that uh, it seduces him almost like uh, sexually, the way that uh, it's almost that, uh, a David Lynchian kind of moment where Henry is is uh, peering through those blinds uh, voyeuristically. Um, the idea of a voyeur, the idea of peering into a world that is that is seductive and and uh, foreign is is a big part of Goodfellas. And I think it's the part that perhaps influ uh, interests Scorsese the most is this idea of an insider, uh, of, of what is it about this life that seduces and and what is it, that and what is the cold reality of that behind the the things that look really great like warner brothers uh i say this about a lot of movies i love this bulldog here like warner brother now and there's little details like these guys in the background behind uh tutty there with the yellow cardigans or those yellow sweaters and then you know they've obviously stolen and then you see the guys out front as henry runs by with uh wearing those sweaters Nice little touches like that in this movie. It's a very detail-oriented movie. The actor here playing the young Henry Hill is an actor named Chris Cerrone. Christopher Cerrone. And the actor playing his father is an actor, I believe, named Bo Starr. And this is a very harrowing scene, um, especially if he had a, a stern father growing up. Um, the mother's being played by Elaine Kagan. Not the Supreme Court Justice. That's Elena Kagan. This woman is Elaine Kagan. Now, the book takes a lot of, goes into, a, or, or you might say, spends a lot more time exploring Henry's childhood. And, and the way these freeze frames keep popping up, um, really, I think the main idea with the freeze frames and the, and the, the voiceover is that Scorsese's sort of emphasizing the fact that 
this is a first person account and and you know we see a lot of people telling stories and telling jokes in a in a charismatic way in the movie that's sort of a a trope of of gangsters and and uh, as an italian i would say uh, and of italians of the the ability to entertain to tell an entertaining anecdote and so we really have that sense of a free flowing first person narrative in which uh leota's voiceover um is capable of going back and forth in time telling you know, oh i forgot to say you know and skipping around the narrative not telling it as a straight chronology as as um Pelegi does in the book Pelegi's book is very here's another freeze frame on this this poor mailman uh Pelegi's book is very um Pelegi is a very he's a obviously a true crime writer but he's a very journalistic style writer it's uh um just very good at describing the plain facts and really setting a scene um, but the book is a straight chronology, and um, and it has Henry Hill's voice quite a bit in it. But um, Scorsese really captures, uh, like I said, that Italian uh, and and perhaps uh, mafioso type of, of free flowing uh, uh, way of telling a story. And uh, you know, it's interesting too that Leo. I'll say more about Leota later, but Leota's uh, voiceover is really a uh, sort of deadpan um, but I think it's I would argue that it's just right there's my dog again waiting for scraps and someone gave him one the opening of the movie by the way the that um, thing with them in the car and Billy Betts what Scorsese was going for he said um, is uh, a, sort of an homage to Truffaut uh, uh, Truffaut's movie uh, uh, Jules and Jim where you have um, well it, uh, it's basically the same thing you've got a beginning sort of like that but but you've got uh, voiceover being used in a certain way and and so it's sort of Scorsese's consciousness of the French New Wave as as Scorsese part of that film school generation of directors that came up in the 60s and 70s that sort of um, children of Corman you might say um, it, he really really had a consciousness of um of that sort of thing of uh well uh, now the way this is um being photographed here and the musical accompaniment that Scorsese uses It's meant to seem sort of romantic. It's meant to be alluring. This is a this is a movie in which we're supposed to be disillusioned. Uh, this is an antidote, uh, as many people have said. Here's the I think the best freeze frame in the movie, and the voiceover that accompanies it um, is Leota saying that the kids in the neighborhood carried his mother's groceries home, and that was out of respect, simply because he was associated um, with the the mafia. That idea of being a uh, commanding respect and and being feared and and uh, is part of what's so alluring for the young Henry Hill. I never forgot this scene the first time I saw it, and or since the first time I saw it, I never forget it. This this it's sort of a what they sometimes call a save the cat moment, where we see Henry Hill showing compassion for a guy who's been shot but this is a real thing that happened to the real Henry Hill and uh, 
and he got in trouble for wasting aprons on the guy or it was something like that. But that endears us to Henry. Uh, it shows that maybe he's a little different. Despite him being a part of this world, he's a little bit different from these guys. Um, and that will pay off later on when, of course, Henry, Henry flips. What I what I forgot to say earlier, and I lost my train of thought, was the whole the, about the French New Wave and the opening and what Scorsese is going for with Jules and Jim. He was part of a generation of directors that came up in the '60s and '70s: uh, Coppola and uh, Spielberg and uh, John Milius. Um, they're often called the film school generation uh, because they all went to film school, not surprisingly, and um, they were very conscious of the French New Wave. The movie. Um, the 400 Blows and Breathless were uh, huge influences on them. Here's our first look at De Niro, um, Jimmy Burke, and, and, you know, the idea with this, this stuff with the young Henry, we see these characters, we see the life that they're leading, De, De Niro and Paulie there, played by Sorvino. We see them as Henry sees them. You know, it, this is... Uh, the idea here is De Niro is supposed to seem cool. This is supposed to seem cool to us because this movie, like I said, is the antidote to all the Hollywood movies that um, don't really show the nitty-gritty of what it means to be in the mafia, what it means to be a gangster. It's, it was the genius of uh, the show The Sopranos, uh, too, um, is that you showed, I mean, uh, what do we know about Don, uh, Don Corleone in The Godfather? We know that the olive oil business, something with Hyman Roth, but it's, you know, they don't really get into the nitty gritty of what goes down in the street, what the soldiers and enforcers for the mafia do. And that's what Goodfellas is about. It's about the, um, the, uh, the work of what you actually do. So we have uh, images of, of this uh, nature like we have here. Of, uh, we see how they make their money, how they make their food. Uh, we see them uh, with the cigarettes, the cut-rate cigarettes here, and they're even going to uh, something that they set up really early in the movie, which I like that Scorsese does with um, Pelegi in the screenplay. They set it up real early about the idea of bribing cops, and here come these cops, and oh, we'll just give them a couple... Looks like Paul Mall cigarettes there. Uh, well, I'll just give him some cigarettes, and the cop even has a line here. Uh, there it is. I'd complain, but who'd listen? Uh, the idea of uh, the mafia being intractable, uh, being just the way things are, the, the, the way the world is. It's a reality that we can never really stamp out. Um, I love uh, Christopher Cerrone, the actor here, the way he plays this, telling, telling these men in suits who are obviously... Uh, law enforcement, uh, it's okay. No, 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 you don't get it. It's okay. Um, and we think, boy, is that kid naive. But we'll learn uh, when we see his lawyer here give the judge a little wink and a nod in a moment. We'll learn that uh, actually, no, 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 um, he was right. Uh, it is okay. Um, those guys in suits didn't really get it, or they hadn't been paid off the way the others had been. So, um, the idea of, of, again, the mafia being a really intractable thing, uh, something that just is going to be and always will, uh, is very, um, you know, that, that La Cosa Nostra and the original um, uh, crime families in, in Sicily and Italy, that was a big part of uh, sort of that, the culture surrounding that, was that this is, all, this is just the way it is. This is how the world is, and the black hand will always be. 
Now, this is a very important moment uh, that we're looking at here. Uh, with De Niro, uh, Jimmy Burke telling Henry, the idea of there being two families is something that um, we see in a lot of mafia movies. You've got your mafia, quote, quotation marks family, right? And you've got your biological family. And the movie sets this up right away at the beginning. And um, we've seen Henry's father. Um, you know, I love I love how uh, the mob problem solved for him too the, the straightforward way they problem solved his father was mad because he was getting these truant letters that his kid wasn't in school and they and he and so he punished henry henry couldn't make deliveries anymore and so his buddies in the mafia say okay well here's how you solve that problem hey mailman no more letters go to that house or we kill you you have to admire the straightforwardness even though it's morally bankrupt um now, this is just them leaning against the car there, so dragging on the cigarette. Um, it is a very romantic and cool. I mean, uh, those guys are really, they really look cool. You know, they look like rebel, rebels and and um, people see that and they go, oh, cool. Uh, I want to be like that. And so this is a movie about disabusing us of these romantic notions. We don't want to be like these guys. Uh, Scorsese doesn't moralize about it in the movie, but he finds these guys reprehensible. He finds what they're doing reprehensible. And I, I, uh, I'll point out small moments in the movie where I think he's emphasizing that. He wants us to be disillusioned by it. Or, or to... He wants to smack us with the reality of what it really means to belong to a crime family. Oh, I just... Uh, I hate seeing, uh, I mean, it's, it's certainly appropriate for the movie, but, uh, just the N word, the way that character who the, you know, uses the N word, it's just, uh. the famous, uh, scene where we're meeting people, uh, much has been said about it, uh, this point of view shot. It's not Henry's point of view in that these are not Henry's eyes. This is just like, someone else because the camera is actually going to pick up Henry. My favorite one uh, just past there. Uh, there's Nikki eyes, but Pete the killer. <laughs> like they don't even, uh, they don't even try to give him a nickname. That's euphemistic. It's just Pete the killer. And of course the, the Jimmy two times who's now forever entrenched in pop culture. All very nicely choreographed this tracking shot. That's, that was Vinnie Pastore on the other end of that court rack, uh, big pussy. And you see how it picks up Henry. It picks up Leota. So it wasn't him walking around. It was someone else. And now uh, the actor on the right there, by the way, is an, a man named Tony Darrow. And um, he was in a, a Woody Allen movie called Small Time Crooks that I, I just love. Uh, I, I love screwball comedy, and I, I just love him in that movie. But he's uh, he's very funny in it, too. He's a great... Uh, Great actor. I like Tony Darrow. But the thing about that scene that just passed where, oh, here's Jimmy two times. I, those characters really don't play a part in the movie. They don't. I mean, they, they're just they're there for texture. It's important we know them because we're going to we're going to we know who they are and, and that they belong um, and we get their names. And in a sense, that's all you have to know about. I mean, Pete the killer. What more do you have to know about him? But um, when they when they have the whole thing with the Lufthansa heist, um, Henry will have this voiceover where, where he says, um, Johnny Roast Beef did this, and this guy did this. You know, I love how the camera 
sort of haywires in on uh, De Niro there. This is a movie in which, um, but yeah, yeah, uh, just to finish that thought, uh, he says, uh, this guy does this. And so they're names that we've already heard before, and we, we feel like we know them as well as we want to know them. <laughs> a moment ago when the camera haywired in on um, De Niro, the thought that occurred to me was um, something that I've often thought about this movie. It's a movie that, um, you know, I, I don't know too many people that think it sucks. Uh, and it's universally regarded as great. And uh, people say it's the best film of the 90s. And I think, for me, it's the best example of what a Scorsese movie is and, and what this director's skills are when he's really in full command of, of his skills. Um, everything's running on all cylinders and, and the movie will reach a point toward the end in the, in the, in the last reel or so, whereas it's running on all cylinders so well and everything he does in this movie, Scorsese does, is just working, um, that it reaches this sort of fever pitch where he could do just about anything and he'd still have us hooked. He'd still make the movie work. Um, I don't really have any critiques of the movie uh that are of any uh substance really i mean i i uh, think highly of it as well now here here we're setting up this idea of um it's important that you know uh we view the tommy the pesci character pesci of course won an academy award for this it's important that we view him in a way that is you know, we see that he's funny. We see that he can entertain. We see that other people like him because uh, later on we're going to find how brutal he is. And and um, the real Tommy was uh, evidently a very large man. Elma Schoonmaker said uh, on the DVD extras um, that the reason this works, she often tells film students, she says, the reason this works, this scene works, the famous scene of... Uh, Tommy getting upset or pretending to be offended at, with Henry. The reason it works is because we see the faces of the people sitting around these other gangsters who are obviously gangsters too, some of whom we, we already know their name. But as the conversation gets really serious and tense and, and it becomes clear, we think at the moment it becomes clear that um, he's not joking. Uh, funny like a clown, do I amuse you, he just said. Um we see these killers, these, these really tough gangsters, we see them tense up and we see them get nervous. And if they're nervous, we must know that this Tommy is a very dangerous guy. Now, that's really great screenwriting, I think, because we, we're being signaled just how, you know, even the, the fellow gangsters fear him. That's how ruthless and scary this guy is. You see their faces, the face of Nicky eyes there. Um, and we figure if they're scared, this guy must be really, really dangerous. So we don't see him doing anything exceptionally brutal that creeps out the other gangsters. We just have this suggestion of it. Very, very nicely done. And the way I, you know, analyze this stuff all coldly and everything, I mean, it's easy to forget how funny this is. I mean, I, I laugh my head off when I watch this movie. It's one of the funniest movies uh, that's not a funny movie at times. Uh, this whole thing with um, the Bill and, um, you, you know, the Pesci character just has some great lines. Uh, later he'll 
he'll say, uh, some spider will forget to bring him his drink, and he'll say, what do you have me on the pay no mind list? <laughs> and the idea of the scene, you know, is that he, he pretends to be offended, and now he really is offended, and we see that, we see what they were so scared of, is that this is a guy who would hit you over the head with a bottle just as soon as talk to you. And there's nice little bookends in the movie that aren't things that the movie um, makes a big deal of, but uh, or, or parallel. I, I use the word bookends uh, the wrong way a little bit. Parallels in the movie that the movie doesn't really make a big deal of, but they're great. Like this idea of Tommy, he pulls out a gun right in the nightclub. This idea of Tommy being a, an entertaining storyteller and entertaining a table full of people. Later, we will meet his mother. And uh, his mother will do a similar thing where she'll be exceptionally charming and everybody will love her. Uh, all very nicely folded into the narrative, you know. It's great that we also see the consequences of that scene. That this, this guy who's a, an associate of the mafia who runs the place has to go to the, bo to the boss, Paul Sorvino. Uh, playing Pauly uh, Vario, has to go to the boss and say uh, that this is getting out of hand and that he's fearful. And um, really, really great. Paul Sorvino um, is a man like Scorsese who is um, very, uh, you might say, in touch with his um, roots as a, an Italian-American and in touch with Italian culture. I believe he speaks Italian and sings opera a little bit. And uh, But the experience of these sort of uh, gangsters, uh, Brooklyn Knight uh, gangsters, this sort of roughneck uh, Italian-American, um, uh, you know, guys who say uh, over here, over there, this sort of thing, guys who know people in the mafia. That really was never uh, Scorsese's uh, milieu or never a crowd that he ran with. And Paul Sorvino um, was, uh, he said that he was sort of the same way. He's sort of this erudite, um, uh, <laughs> I love the look he gives there. He's sort of this erudite guy, and, and, uh, and um, so he found it difficult to play this role, uh, at first anyway. Here again, that motif of someone cracking a joke and it not landing and people not knowing, you know, hey, hey, you know, you shouldn't have said that. You know. Let me, um, I think I mentioned that Scorsese and Pelleggi um, did, uh, I think it was a dozen drafts of the screenplay. Um, it's a screenplay that's often cited as um, being a, uh, you know, often um, copied, you know, um, uh, the movie Boogie Nights, a movie I adore, Paul Thomas Anderson. I mean, it's one big homage to to um, Scorsese movies and particularly Goodfellas, the way it tells a story of an ensemble cast. Uh, it doesn't play with chronology so much, but there's uh, a lot of little things. Maybe I'll maybe I'll point out a little bit. Um, it's a very fast paced um, movie. Scorsese deliberately designed the movie to have short scenes and 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 to take us from place to place and to and to um uh 
give us several narrative threads that we have to hold in our head at once as the story touches upon them from different angles. And, uh, you know, uh, we even have another voiceover from Karen, uh, the Lorraine Bracco character. So he designed these short scenes to really create the sense, I, I feel, to create this sense of he does the same uh, we have tony darrow signing these papers it's the same thing with these men stand standing over him watching you know it, it, he does that in casino too scorsese it's kevin pollock's character that uh, is signing away something or other it's another scorsese uh, motif what you just saw there of them sticking the little wads of whatever toilet paper in the turpentine uh you have the uh cut-in shots uh the close-up shots of the matches of someone hanging it of someone dipping it in the in the pink uh stuff um it gives us a sense of the whole through these small details we we know what they're doing uh by focusing in on the little matchbook and the you know um beautifully beautifully um done and something that he does a lot and something that other people try to copy, but it doesn't really come off because they don't have his his eye for it. They don't select the details right, or they don't have the pacing right, and Scorsese has just a great eye for how to tell a story with um, the camera. What's funny about this little... Um, I'm going to zoom out in a sec here and talk about some more general things about the movie and, and why I'm doing the commentary for it. Um... It was, well, basically there, it was suggested by someone who um, emails me about the commentaries, uh, Glenn from uh, Philly, and um, I loved the movie as much as he said he loved it, and we had a discussion about it, and so I thought it'd be good to do the commentary, but um, what's so funny about that little scene in the car, uh, well, obviously, uh, again, um, Pesci gets all the best lines, but it's just funny that he's saying... Uh, can you believe that this woman is prejudiced in this in this day and age? She's prejudiced against Italians, um, and he exclaims, "A Jew broad is prejudiced against it." And it'll be funny because later on he will um, make some um, racially insensitive uh, joking uh, remarks about uh, Nat King Cole and Sammy Davis, and so um, and yet here he's being um, taking umbrage at at the idea of racial prejudice or ethnic prejudice first shot of uh lorraine bracco now here's a good example of um where a movie takes dramatic license and changes the facts of the true story just to make the movie a little more coherent uh, literally coherent to make it cohere to good storytelling um the the double date that the real henry hill went on this particular night uh, with his uh, would-be wife, or, or soon-to-be wife, um, was actually with Paul Vario's son. It wasn't with the Tommy character. But even though they're trying to be um, true to the facts of what happened in this story in real life, um, they took a little dramatic license and made it be with the Pesci character. Because ultimately it really doesn't matter. Uh, who the date was with what matters is the outcome and how it and, and this interaction that we have here this very strange uh, thing where all of a sudden a woman is um, 
dressing down a man in in the street and the gangsters or the other gangsters are getting a kick out of it and it's very important that we see Henry talk his way out of it that he weasels his way out of it and it endears us to to both of them doesn't it I mean um, I'll I'll say a bit about Leo I'll be saying a bit about Leota but Leota is just perfect for this role at the time he was um uh you know actors uh, that were sort of in his age bracket at the time um just a lot of them could not have done this role uh it just calls for an intelligence and a and a a smoothness if that makes any sense that he just has and he, he there's an edge to leota even the young leota that is uh uh that can be very scary and and um You know, this moment with the Jewish mother, hide the cross, uh, just the good half. Again, talking his way out of it. <clears throat> Before I zoom out, uh, we obviously have to talk about what's on the screen here. Um, the famous tracking shot at the Copa. She is being introduced to the world that Henry Hill has access to. It is a world where you don't wait in line. You go in through the back. It is a world where everybody knows your name at the Copa. Everybody likes you. It's like she said, everybody wanted to know him. Everybody wanted to be near him. The Steadicam operator here is is phenomenal. This deserves to be lauded This as one of the great sequences in film history. Um, for those who don't know, Steadicam is just a, an apparatus that allows a, a camera man or a camera camera operator to uh, walk around and actually um, make rather um, to, to, to move around and jostle the camera rather a lot while at the same time keeping things in frame and, and not shaking and blurring the image or, or um, compromising the image that the camera is taking in. If you've ever been on a movie set, you know that what's really remarkable about this is not the blocking and, and not the... Um, the storyboarded um, idea of this shot, but it's just the fact that all these extras, uh, all these chefs, all these people, all these people you see here, all of these extras have to be hitting marks at the right time. They have, you know, the people, I mean, this guy has to get his line right. Everybody has to get there, has to do what they're supposed to do when they're, I mean, it's just the choreography of this is amazing. If there's not enough tables, don't worry, Henry, we'll, we'll get you. One, it's easy to see, and we hear that he's 21 or, or so at the time uh, from Bracco's voiceover. It's just, um, I don't know, Scorsese does this exemplary job uh, or this wonderful job of um, showing and not telling. You know, showing us what is so alluring and, and, and what, what is so impressive. I mean, this is the nice side of being a gangster is... Uh, Henry is basically Sinatra here. He's a celebrity. And we see these people send over these, uh, the champagne. And of course, she, she, it has to culminate in that little exchange. What do you do? Uh, you know, because later on, she'll be the wife of him and, and she'll know exactly what he does. But here he says he's a union delegate. Uh, for the construction union. And Scorsese finishes the entire sequence with this shot of 
the real Henny Youngman. And I understand that if you are not, uh, if you're of a certain age, you might not know who this is, but this is one of the great comedians. He used to be on, uh, I think he used to go on the Sid, Sid, Sid Caesar program, which was one of the early television variety shows. And he's just, a, and they got the real guy to play him. Uh, uh, just uh, emphasizes another sense of reality here. So the Lufthansa heist, we, we have a bit of that storyline here. We see them actually carrying out some elements of the heist. And um, uh, for those who don't know, the Lufthansa heist, well, I think he says it in the movie, it was the biggest cash heist in history. Uh, he says here, we, we made $420,000 without using a gun. We did the right thing. We, uh, <laughs> the irony of that, we did the right thing, not turn ourselves into the authorities, but we, we gave the boss his cut. We didn't hide any money from him. So we see this um, sort of how he made his bones as a gangster scene. Um, and... Um, we see him the successful side of the game, and then later on, when the movie takes its big turn, we'll see the 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 um, the gritty side of that Lufthansa heist. We'll see the negative consequences of it. I have to say, as far as um, fish out of water scenes go uh, in movies, and you see them a lot, especially in like MGM movies from the fifties, you know, with um, Audrey Hepburn, you know. This is one of the great fish out of water scenes, and it's never um, it's never um, cited when people talk about their favorite scenes from this movie. But um, you know, Henry, it, it, maybe because it's so subtly acted, so well acted, Henry is um, you know that that that's not a comic relief scene. It, it just sets up that character of Bruce, the guy who will will later um, um, be rather ungallant with um, Karen. Uh, but he doesn't know that he can't pay cash. He has to sign for it. It's all brightly colored, unlike these nightclubs he hangs with, he hangs out in. So it's just a, it's a very subtle fish out of water scene. It's not, it's not played as farcical. It's just played straight. Very, very cool. That, uh, she said Bobby Vinton sent us over champagne. Now, uh, it occurs to me too that people might not know who the hell Bobby Vinton is. One of the great crooners and the person who's playing Bobby Vinton there in the movie that you saw singing on stage, uh, if you see a picture of Bobby Vinton online, you might say, oh, that guy really does look like Bobby Vinton looked in the 50s or the, uh, the I guess this would be the 70s, uh, but uh, or 60s or 70s. But um, no, no, uh, that actor was um, actually Robbie, Robbie Vinton, Bobby Vinton's son, which is why you have that resemblance. Chuck Lowe is the actor who plays Maury. Uh, this is a very entertaining character in the movie. Um, the kinds of commercials for local businesses that ran in New York City in the 60s and 70s, I can remember them, and uh, Scorsese gets it right. <laughs> That's the, I mean, they were often that absurd and um, because these people wanted to get attention for their businesses and it's a great introduction to the Maury character because he, it, 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 the entire character, he is sort of um, chagrined and upset that he's owed money or not getting what he's owed or that he's being treated like a schmuck on wheels, as he says, by, by um, uh, primarily the Jimmy character, De Niro. This scene 
is uh, a great head fake too that Scorsese pulls because here we're thinking this is a scene about I mean look how intense this is we think and Leota laughing again I mean that's what makes it so scary is that this is such a routine occurrence this kind of brutality that he's laughing over it over the fact that the wig came uh, unglued but look look what happens here this this is we think this is about money we think this is about Jimmy we think this is about uh, Maury and then Henry gets this phone call. It doesn't seem forced either. You know, sometimes in movies, uh, you see it a lot on TV too. The phone will ring and it'll be something uh, that leads us to the next scene saying, what? Yes, Mr. President, I'll mount my way. You know, but here it just seems very natural that he picks up the phone and, and then it, it's Karen who has just been um, uh, treated uh, harshly by uh, this guy, Bruce. We never hear the whole story of what happens, but this is kind of another save the cat thing with Henry, and it it's sort of the consummation of their relationship. The, the wedding scene that's going to come after this is not really the consummation of their relationship. Uh, this is what, I mean, we see, we saw already what attracts her to him, but this is also what, or what attracts him or what attracts her to him, um, but that th this whole sequence here with um, and the fact that it happens in broad daylight. Look at that. Um, this is what makes her stick with him, you know, because sometimes people think in The Godfather you could even say, you know, Diane Keaton, you know, why why does she stay so long with Michael before she gets upset and leave? You know, how could you put up with that? Well. Um, it's this sort of thing. It's also she feels protected. It's it's he protects her. He is, um, you know, she gets a lot of benefits from him being a dangerous guy. Boy, that just comes out of no. I remember the first time I I saw the film. This just comes out and Leota just, uh, wow, you know, I mean he plays this. Uh, it's amazing. People get annoyed when I go on and on about... If you're not a car person, I could see why it would be annoying. But um, I'm not going to go on and on about the cars, these old, these wonderful old cars in the movie. Um, but that was a beauty that was in the driveway that those dudes were working on. <laughs> She'll have the line here. She'll say, I have to admit the truth. It turned me on. That'll be her voiceover. Um, and so this is like uh, this is a there's a sexual uh, uh, quality to this this uh, exchange. I mean, uh, sex is is basically exchanging intimacy with someone, and and having her hide the gun is it, first of all it's puzzling. You know why why would he need her? Why would he? It's actually stupid to have her hide the gun, but he does it. He does it because you know, maybe because he wants to signal to her that trust and, and, and it's sort of, um, it's almost like that scene. Now you have the wedding. It's almost like that scene is his wedding proposal is his, his offer to her, you know, do you, this is what it means, but there's, there's good and bad, there's bad and there's good to it. If that makes any sense. So the PTA movie boogie nights also does a lot with, um, this wedding scene. Um, you know, the way we have those cut-in shots of flash bulbs going off when the picture's taken. Um, here we have Catherine Scorsese, Scorsese's mother, who plays Tommy's mother in the movie, setting up uh, her kind of personality. We we have this nice slow dolly where we um, get to see characters in and out of their element a little bit. 
Um, we get to see them with their wives. We get to see them with their girlfriends. We get to see them at a wedding. Um, we have this slow motion stuff here uh, that is clearly Karen's point of view. The voiceover signals that to us as well. She explains how everybody's name Peter or Paul, <laughs> which is what it means to be at an Italian wedding. I mean, this is not far off. The, the absurdity of, uh, for example, Marie's hair, that, <laughs> that woman's hair. <laughs> That's a, that is an Italian-American wedding, I can tell you. Jesus fucking Christ it is. Um, yeah, see, the, the, the slow-mo, I mean, that's clearly the point of view of Karen. Because we have to be invested in her, too. This is Henry's story, but, you know, there's going to come a, uh, a time later on in the film where we have to be invested with her, too. Let me zoom out, like I said I was going to, and, and just say... Um, uh, some facts about the movie for those who might not uh, know. Uh, like I said, it, it's re always been regarded as so great, and so I, uh, I jumped at the chance to, to do it because it's... Um, we're actually at a point now with Scorsese where I think um, people forget how great it is, or, or there are movies that are so... You know, people... There's so much agreement on their greatness that we actually... Sometimes they we don't take a a close look at it uh, as much as we might <laughs> but uh, the budget I believe was around 25 million and I think it grossed nearly um, 47 million dollars domestically um, I think that's correct so 25 million is it's reasonable but I mean this is 1989 um, production uh, released in 1990 I think I mentioned the six Oscar nominations uh, with Pesci winning and and the um the idea of uh ecstasy and disillusionment um you know um happiness and then unhappiness this we have this immediately after their dance at the wedding we have this scene of um I love that the father is almost not present even though he is it's good screenwriting there too the fact that the father's present for this but not engaged you know he's just kind of there it, it gives these two an audience. Um, and we notice here, uh, I, I said I was going to zoom out, but I just want to say something about the psychology that the movie gets right here. I mean, uh, any psychotherapist will tell you that people will defend their spouses, their their children, and their parents. People will defend the, those people no matter what sometimes. Um and here we see Karen defending Henry to her mother, even though her mother is clearly um, has a point. And it's another one of those subtle bookends, the doorstep scene where we, we were hiding the cross on his neck earlier. Um, you know, just the good half. It's such an interesting line when you think, <laughs> Pesci here, such an interesting line when you think about it in retrospect, you know. Um, there's a good half to his life and a bad half in a sense, you know, uh, as we watch this, um, hostess party where, um, now here's a whole sequence where we meet the wives and stuff where, you know, arguably you don't need it, but it, it just provides so much texture and, and really does what the Godfather and these other mafia movies don't do is it really shows you the day to day. It really shows you that it really shows you what it's like and, and, and she's the voiceover Karen's voiceover is describing what it feels like um, 
And this woman, we get a little bit of her anecdote of this guy groping her and how her husband would kill the guy. And then, of course, there's Alana Douglas, who was, um, at the time, I think, was dating Scorsese. But um, it's not why she was in the movie. She's a, a, a good actress in her own right. She'd been in tons of movies. But um, it so happens that they were, I think, an item at some point. Um. So it was a $25 million budget um, uh, with Warner Brothers, and um, what greenlit the movie, uh, I read the production notes, what greenlit it apparently was Robert De Niro signing on, uh, uh, which is so crazy because De Niro isn't the star. He's a major character in the movie, but it's not his movie. I mean, we go long stretches where he's not on screen, and when he is on screen, it's just... Uh, you know, he doesn't have long soliloquies exactly. You know, he's got some really great stuff here, but you wouldn't call this a, a starring role for De Niro. Uh, but, you know, the, the marketing for the movie, too, was um, sort of suggested that um, De, you'd get the impression that De Niro's in it more than he actually is. So, But, but the real big money came when he signed on to um, for the project. Uh, what else generally? Um, well, it, it, uh, probably should have won best picture. Um, Dances with Wolves, I think, got best picture, but, um, it did win best director at Venice, uh, premiered at Venice, I think. And I caught it, uh, uh, opening weekend in, uh, New York City, uh, in, when it came out, um, And the, the um, principal photography was in uh, New York City, uh, New York State, and uh, and New Jersey, apparently. And uh, there are some, it's coming up later in the movie, there are some uh, boulevards uh, that I believe are, um, I believe I know where they filmed them, so maybe I'll point out a couple of them. It's, it's not terribly fascinating, but it's always exciting to see a, a street you know that isn't a famous, you know, a postcard kind of uh street that uh line that pesci has there so that's just some general stuff i thought i'd uh, include that line that pesci there says um where's the strong box you varmint as they're hijacking this truck um it's sort of a it, it sort of aligns with uh the whole cowboy thing that we'll hear from him later uh yahoo and the oklahoma kid and and uh uh, and it also aligns with something um, the Sorvino character will say later that uh, Tommy is a, a cowboy. He's reckless. He's got too much to prove, he says. So. And while we watch that, we have Karen's voiceover um, where she describes, you know, her experience. Uh, evidently, this is a real uh, detective, um, but um, where she she's describing how you know, the feds would come with some stupid warrant and they just wanted a little snap. You know, they just wanted money no matter what they they found. And um, and you see these guys walking through her house doing this rather half-hearted search and she's sitting there with her kid watching television. I mean, that is a, a depiction of what her life as a mafia spouse is like 
and then and then she describes how other wives handle it spitting on the floor and she always would offer them coffee i mean um just really wonderfully expressed and this happy-go-lucky program she's watching it looks like maybe jolson i I didn't catch it there i wasn't looking at the screen at that moment but i think it might have been jolson and um it's important to people don't always talk about this with Goodfellas. It's important to sort of notice how this movie moves. I mean, we, we go from that to this happy-go-lucky birthday party, and then we have this. Look at this. Look at these these photographs. These <laughs> As if she's flipping through her photograph book and showing us what um, the life and times of her as a mafia wife uh, were like. That's a great one there, pouring the water. I mean, it's just... Uh, uh, not to belabor the point, but the, just the level of texture we get there, uh, and the and the way that endears us, and and I love the way that even though they seem to be in different rooms, the the panning the panning across their closet, seeing all their clothes, and um, these sort of wide shots, so you can see how spacious their house is. I mean, uh, uh, this this money that she tells them how much money she needs by indicating a a width. A width with her finger um, um, and then this relationship uh, between um, sexual sexuality and money and Henry uh, providing for the family and the way he provides as kind of an aphrodisiac that little scene there just uh, you know none of it all, and then and to have all that to be doing all that stuff that Scorsese's doing in these scenes you know the and then to just have it come off so naturally and and without feeling um, like information overload. Uh, look at the first 45 minutes, first 40 minutes, say, of Goodfellas. Um, and if you sort of had a list or kept an Excel spreadsheet of just all the facts, all the inf- pieces of information that were given that we learn, characters and and events, and I mean, just every piece of information that you learn in those first 40 minutes... Uh, it's probably more than you learn in any other first 40 minutes of any other movie. I mean, I would not be surprised if that were the case. And it doesn't feel like you're learning. You're just, you're just, you're just, um, you know, it's the audience has voyeur thing. You're just, you're just watching. And it, it, it just, you're so captivated by the, the, um, the conflict going on in some of these scenes um, that it's, imp- it, it doesn't feel like an information dump ever uh, because it isn't. Uh, here's Frank Vincent, uh, of course, playing Billy Batts, one of the most famous characters in cinema. And he and Pesci have quite a chemistry. Uh, you saw him when he was had his hand on Pesci's shoulder there and the, the ball breaking, as it were, that goes on here. And, and the way Pesci reacts to it, this is really, I think, Pesci's Oscar clip. This is the, the scene that justifies the Oscar, uh, that moment when he says, I don't shine shoes anymore. Um, I don't shine shoes anymore, Billy. Yeah, there, he said it right now. Uh, um, that moment is just, uh, it becomes his movie at that moment, you know, it, 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 or, or for the rest of this scene, it's, it's Pesci's movie. And, and now all of a sudden, again, look how Scorsese moves and, move, and, and, and we have the nervous, uh, faces of the people around them again. Look how Schoonmaker edits this in a way, and Scorsese crafts it in a way where um, 
it it just uh, all of a sudden it doesn't feel jarring at all, and it's about these two and their history. Yeah, you see this Pesci. I mean, this is really um, yeah, people who think he didn't deserve the Oscar. This is what I would submit. Uh, this this scene here. I I mentioned the chemistry he and uh, Vincent have. Vince Frank Vincent has been in so many movies, and um, actually met him once. He was. Uh, uh, nice, nice to me anyway. Uh, seemed like a, a, a relatively normal uh, guy. Didn't mind, didn't mind uh, a few stupid questions from someone who had seen him in so many movies. Uh, and here, and the, uh, I'm just, I got sucked in for a moment there, just because De Niro here uh, all of a sudden steals the scene. It's, it's tremendous. Uh, <laughs> De Niro. Uh, and, of course, that becomes a, a famous uh, cultural thing, too. A, a little bit. You offended him a little bit. You got a little bit out of line yourself. You know, we have... I love the way we see the aftermath of that. Uh, you know, we, we actually... After Pesci storms off, we don't follow him. We stay in the bar there. And we see the aftermath and how these people in this world process what happened and and it's with this sort of um uh, um vaguely deferential kind of oh okay you insulted him a little bit you got a little bit online yourself but hey you know i just love that i just you know i mean uh, uh this is a movie that you can learn so much about how to craft a scene uh and make it interesting you know uh, so many movies and so many filmmakers and screenwriters would have followed Pesci because he's the guy who storms off. But we stay in we stay in the bar. That's so important. And of course, uh, the rage of Pesci is important there because it, it's important that this murder was spontaneous. That uh, was not a a premeditated thing uh, because this will be this will lead to. A retribution uh, that leads to the death of uh, Pesci. The same sort of idea with Scorsese giving us the the way they get rid of the body, and Pesci apologizes for getting blood on the floor. Wonderful. Huh. And this is what you don't see so much of in those romanticized gangster movies, right? Um, you don't see so much of this. Uh, getting rid of the body, uh, the work that it entails, the fact that they don't have the proper tools, so they have to stop at someone's house, someone's mother's house, and get a chef knife. Uh, and this is uh, Catherine Scorsese here, um, the director's mother. His father's in the movie, too. I'll point him out when he pops up. Uh, this to me is the most realistic scene in the movie. Um, you know, if you have an Italian mother, there's no way that they, I mean, they're literally taking part in a murder now at the moment. <laughs> and that, but there was still no way that she was going to let them out of this fucking house without feeding them. There was just no way. Um, and we have that. And this is the scene I referenced earlier about um we sort of see that the apple didn't fall far from the tree when she begins to tell that joke 
uh, or, well, first she takes an interest in Henry in Henry at the table and says that he's quiet, and that leads her to tell that joke about the quiet man, uh, and she um, the wife is two timing him, and and um, and she makes everybody at the table laugh. That looks like a a ten or a twelve inch uh, forged steel chef knife that he has there. It's a great uh, looks like a nice knife, um, and she repeats what she said at the wedding get yourself a girl and settle down uh, but yeah this is the scene where she entertains everybody just like her son could entertain a table full of people we, we i just the movie doesn't make a big deal of, of you know the movie doesn't do that thing movies do where it says hey i want you to notice how clever we're being here it just it just we're so captivated by what what's happening and the fact that there's a body outside um and of course it's a little bit on the nose, but in between them on the wall back there, we have The Last Supper, uh, 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 a, pain, a picture of uh, Da Vinci's uh, fresco, The Last Supper. And then um, in this configuration of it, I guess Pesci would be Christ. I don't know. It, it doesn't align very well, but uh, it's... Well, maybe it's not too on the nose since this is the first time I've ever noticed uh, that painting back there. I love that she's got the painting right next to her there. She just pulls it like from under her chair. What? What is that? Where Where does that painting come from? Uh, she had it holstered or something. Um, and then this macabre comedy of De Niro saying, hey, hey it looks like... <laughs> and they laugh and... And Pesci gets freaked out by it, and and all of a sudden it becomes this, this goofy inside joke. And Scorsese can't resist panning out to it, and now we're back at the beginning. Even even this this sort of um these big breaks in chronology, these uh, of telling the same story, but but you know telling it in not in a chronological way. You know, movies that do that, um, like Pulp Fiction, maybe. I mean, they do it in a way where where it's very abrupt and you notice it. But you can watch Goodfellas and not. It's so smooth. Everything, uh, everything um, uh, feels so um, natural. Uh, you know, every cut feels so natural. Uh, I'll say I'll say a bit about Thelma Schoonmaker later. But um, every cut feels so natural that it. You don't. You can watch the movie and then remember it after you've seen it and you don't really remember it as being a uh, not told chronologically uh, because the movie is presented in in the way that memory works this is these are Henry's Henry's story these are Henry's memories and and so it's it's he jumps around and uh, like I said before he jumps around and it's just right? our first introduction of the Janice girlfriend um, Fridays are what was it Fridays are for wives Saturdays were always for girlfriends and that was kind of the rule and so there's Frankie Carbone played by uh the actor uh what's his name Sivero Frank Sivero um and that's um Gina Mastro Giancomo who plays uh the Janice and here Pesci has the whole thing with um you don't he, he's he's being incredibly racist about this whole um 
you know, he obviously objects to miscegenation, uh, quote unquote, uh, he, he, you know, the idea of a white woman kissing a black man. And he's saying, uh, and yet he's the one admonishing, um, his girlfriend, uh, you, you don't, you know, people get the wrong idea about you if you say that kind of thing, but he doesn't care if people get the wrong idea about him saying things that are, that are racist. I just, you know, through that sort of, um, darkly funny moment, we, um, we, we can sort of be awed by the, the backwardness of the world that these guys inhabit. Once again, uh, very, very nicely done in terms of screenwriting, very, you know, very, um, you know, screenwriting is all about, you're trying to achieve a certain effect on the audience with a scene, but you don't want to hit them over the head with it and you don't want it to not connect at all. And so it's a, it's the balance. The movie kind of takes a time out here as it sets up Henry's, um, uh, Gumana, as uh, Italians say, is uh, girlfriend, um, and uh, we had that pan across the faces as they're watching the nightclub performance, and the Pesci was uh, obviously slightly preoccupied and was not as captivated. You know, had something on his mind. It's just it's the movie takes a little time out there to sort of click refresh and and um, set us up for. Um, uh, the downward slide that is slowly um, approaching. That's Scorsese's father there, the man with the cane, uh, Vincent. And Tutty there, played by DeLeo. Uh, I mean, the casting, great. I mean, he's he's literally a smaller version of Pauly, of the Sorvino character. He's literally a, a, a smaller, less powerful version. Um... This will be one of a couple times in the movie where Sorvino takes Henry aside and, and admonishes him about something. The first time is about Billy Bats, as we're hearing, or as you're seeing now. Um, and we already know that the murder was illegal in the world of the mob because Bats was a made guy and, and there was no sit-down and nobody okayed it. Um, and the other time that he will admonish Henry has to do with drugs and Henry's involvement in trafficking drugs or selling drugs. So many of these scenes in the nightclub, uh, is that Chris Penn? Uh, so many of um, uh, these scenes in the nightclub uh, recall Mean Streets. Um, you know, the Harvey Keitel uh, walking through that bar I think I mentioned earlier the uh, the surreal quality uh, or um, the fact that, you know, and Coppola got this right with Apocalypse Now. The ways in which war and maybe particularly um, the Vietnam War was sur surreal and absurd in many ways in um, the things people experienced. And, and uh, the Sopranos got that surreal quality uh to real life gangsters and the lives they lead and how absurd those lives can sometimes be and, and how darkly funny um the sopranos got that right and and you know the fact that they have to go dig up this body and it's just it, it it's this surreal absurd thing 
that is yet rings true. We get the detail about the trunk stinking, and evidently the real Henry Hill says in, in Pelegi's book that um, that he had to get a new car because it was so it was so terrible, the smell. We see Debbie Mazar here, um, another great Italian-American actor uh, who would uh, go on to do a great many uh, uh, movies uh, before and after this, but... Um, this is all a one or two, right? We've got uh, the cinematographer, of course, uh, Michael Ballhaus, who collaborated with Scorsese on lots of his great movies. And um, we sort of went through a wall there, but that's the only sort of um, cheat, you might say. Um, but it's, you know, nothing uh, Renoir doesn't do in the rules of the game. I mean, it's it's a... <laughs> We have this abrupt cut, so we, you know, they probably shot a whole sequence of them, you know, the thing with his girlfriend's boss, and it's one of those uh, little parallels again where he solved her problem the way they once, the mob once solved his problem with the truancy letters, you know. Uh, you just go to the source. The source is this boss, uh, and he literally tells the boss, Janet's can do whatever she wants. Leota's performance is especially good in that little moment where he's making eyes with Debbie Mazar, and because we'll we'll he'll uh, he'll of course have a it will become his um, mistress that he has with his mistress. So it's like he has one mistress for um, nightclubs, one mistress for drugs. Now this is the one where the scene where everybody thinks. Pesci's at his best in the movie, but I, as I said, I think it's in the Billy Bats scene. Uh, very, uh, I'm just very moved by his performance in that scene. Um, all of a sudden, like I say, it becomes about those two guys and their history. Michael Imperioli, of course, of Sopranos fame. Um, he will, he has never, even despite being so great on the Sopranos, he never really lived down being Spider. Uh, he still probably gets it. Um, there's a little thing here where you can clearly see that Pesci's wearing a wig. Uh, if you notice on the back of his head, there. And there's some there's some continuity things, you know, as we cut to the guys at the table and cut to Spider. Um, um, but Schoonmaker, the editor, often ignores continuity uh, because she's. She's going for a different, uh, an emotional continuity of the scene, I think. Not not so much, you know, little things that most people don't notice. The, the scary part is not that he shot someone. The scary part is that these guys, again, these guys at the table don't flinch. And Frankie Carbone says, uh, uh, nice game. We, we, you know, this is some game you're ruining. Um. I think the the whole spider sequence we don't we don't need it right, uh, but it's underscoring the recklessness of of Tommy and it's just so delicious. It's one of those things. It's just so delicious. They can't not have it in the movie. Um, so well acted.
Lorraine Bracco is really good at playing a scorned wife, you know. Uh, I don't know. It, it, it seems like a hard part for an actor to play, but, I mean, this kind of intensity and this kind of, oh, Scorsese with the kids. He always has those shots of kids. That kid looked kind of scared, but most of the time the kids are just kind of, it's sort of like that um, Brisson uh, movie, uh, Al Hazard Balthazar. It's a movie about a donkey that just observes things happening <laughs> Uh, the kids are usually just observing. So this is like the reenactment of that famous painting of dogs playing poker, right? Um, I mean, the whole look of it is it has that uh, quality. De Niro is very, very um, funny here. Um, and it's, again, it's that motif of, um, we're joking around here. We're joking around. We're joking around. Uh, you know what? We're not joking around anymore when I say so. Um, so De Niro is now goading Pesci and the way Pesci was goading Spider. Are you really going to take this from him? What's, you know, and, um, yeah, it, <laughs> you, You know, you don't see it coming. Um, the reason you don't see it coming is because he, he'd already shot him in the foot. And you figure that... Hmm. That's so interesting. He says, you got a problem with what I did, Anthony? And Jimmy, uh, you know, you're the one that's going to dig the hole. His concern is who digs the hole. Just great. So this, this, um, <laughs> again, with the, we have the shots of the kids, but, um, this idea of a woman reporting to her husband's mistresses home and ringing the bell like this with kids in tow in tow it's just such a the humanity of this and the um the fact that you know scenes like this play out in real life every day um it's just you know we're we're this is a part of the movie where we're seeing the the we're starting to see the negative ramifications of what a life led doing what these guys do, what it leads to. We're beginning to sober to those, um, to those realities, you might say. Now, if you know something about guns, which I don't, uh, or, you know, or if you know a little bit about firearms, uh, you might be one of the people who notices the continuity goofs. Uh, here evidently um, it's not the same gun when we cut back and forth or when we cut to medium shot or something but um, this is where the the kind of reality of Henry's life reaches um, a new level he is literally has his wife holding a gun to him and what I want to point out 
And I love that her voiceover cuts in. Oh, this right here. You see the, the cut into the, the hammer of the gun, the nose of the gun. We had her fingers on the trigger. Um, those quick little cut-ins. And we can see the, 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 um, the scratches on the metal. Uh, we can see her finger um, uh, tensed uh, on, on the trigger. We can see uh, the barrel, uh, the texture of the, the barrel and the size of it. Um, as if, uh, as Henry sees it, if you have a gun pointed in your face, if you have anything pointed in your face, you, you're seeing it up close. You're seeing, you know, the reality of it, of its texture, of its feel, of its smell. It, it, it hits you in a way that, you know, it doesn't hit you if uh, you see a picture of something. And, and so Corsese hammers home the reality of that moment by giving us those little cut-ins, you know. Um, oh, it's, it's just done in such a, it's just so effective a move in filmmaking. Um, and it's a move that a lot of directors do, but he does it better. I mean, that's that's really the thing with Scorsese. I mean, uh, is he, he does things that everybody does in a really elegant and better way most of the time. The point of that scene is what Henry says, is, is that... Um, you know, the, the idea of these two families colliding, or, or not colliding, but the idea of these two families, uh, you know, he, he, he has to worry about, as he says, getting shot in the street, and now he has to come home to this. Um, he, he should, uh, it, it should not be that way, uh, he figures. And this whole scene in Janice's apartment has, uh, I think I had this thought, the first time seeing the film and uh, probably most times subsequently is um, <laughs> Sorvino's very good here. He just says, uh, Karen came to the home. She's very upset. Um, the reason I, I find it remarkable has always been the same is that we see the fact that it's not all business in the mafia that to some extent Paulie and, and Jimmy as kind of the mentor of, of Henry, we see that they function also as social workers. I mean, this is social work that they're doing and this is advice that they're giving that, you know, one might argue, I suppose is, is good advice, sensible. They, they have ulterior motives. They want him to, to stay with Karen at the home because he, as he says, you have to keep up appearances. He's worried about the optics, but ultimately, um, you know, and Servino, I love that they keep it sort of cryptic here, what he says. I know just what to say to her, and it's going to be beautiful. You go back. Just very... Um, and the scene sets up the Florida trip. Um, again sort of a little bit of dramatic license there in terms of what happened or not in a Mali in terms of what happened but uh, in real life but um, it, it makes the scene more necessary is that the the um, the time out that they're giving Henry is to go on this errand to Florida and uh, collect a debt um, and this is uh, was a pivotal um, uh event in the life of of the real henry hill and it, and it is um 
depicted as pivotal. I think it was the first major jail stint for a major crime that he did. I might be wrong about that, but um, this was a real um, a real thing that he really went to jail for, and it, and it really so happened that this guy they roughed up had a, uh, a family member who worked for the FBI. The upside-down shot of the tiger, the point of view of the guy, is... Uh, like the gun in the face of Henry is is um, a moment of of the reality of it sinks in. You see that lion sort of looking um, uh, quizzically uh, in that upside down shot. It's very great. <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't hear what she's saying. You know, we just see her talking to the feds and. We have a couple of those little snapshots, and then we're back in this courtroom where they're being sentenced. I think he served something like six months on a ten-year on a ten-year bid. Um, that's uh, somebody should fact check that. But uh, it was uh, he served um, he served not a lot of his actual uh, bid that he had to had to do. Um, the movie kind of leaves that part out, so. They're not much old. And so when Henry gets out of this jail stint, uh, we sort of notice, we're sort of wondering how much time has gone by and the movie actually doesn't say. And so it's kind of uh, perhaps uh, a Persian flaw. <laughs> Maybe that's it, right? Going to jail in a limo, fistful of pills. So I wanted to mention, um, as uh, Henry goes to jail here, um, and, well, first of all, the whole thing with slicing the, um, the garlic and we're seeing the way these guys eat when they're, uh, the way they um, relate to each other in jail and all these little details, um, you know, um, many people have already um, rightly... Um, complimented uh, Scorsese on uh, just, uh, you know, the way these details just kind of work and, you know, all of a sudden the movie's about what they're eating and, and, uh, but, but, you know, food is uh, an entree, um, no pun intended, uh, uh, food is a, a, an entree into the way or, or a, a um, prism through which um, we're being introduced. The movie is introducing us to how these guys live in jail uh, when they're doing this jail bid and as the voiceover of Leota tells us how life for uh, as he says wise guys is is different um, this is more like a dorm uh, than a jail this is um, I don't think um, uh, these days um, people can uh, have these kinds of arrangements uh, when they go away for violent crimes but um, certainly minimum security prisons and other kinds of um, minimum security facilities um, uh, do have stuff that's more like, uh, do have inmates living more like this, what you're seeing here, as we see Scor Scorsese's father uh, with the onions, uh, putting too much onions in the sauce. Uh, it, it is the case that some minimum security facilities um, are more like this than um, Escape from Alcatraz, say. Uh, he, obviously Henry coming and going as he pleases um, coming back with a sack of um, obviously smuggled 
uh, uh, goods. Um, it's a very important scene also just because we're seeing something that is going to play into things later in the movie. We're seeing how um, the mafia, you know, how they can maintain their lifestyle behind bars and how they can they can sort of cope and, and make do. And, and um, the black hand reaches all the way in and they can pay people off in prison. And, um, and then, of course, setting up the drug thing here of Henry uh, getting involved with drugs out of necessity. And this is pretty much, I, I know a couple of people who work in sort of law enforcement and th these kinds of setting guy getting head um, in these kind of settings. And, uh, you know, the way drugs get into the prison, the way drugs are dealt in the prison, it, it, it's um, pretty much that hasn't changed. I mean, uh, paying off guards and, and making special arrangements with guards is um, common. Here's a good example of um, this This whole visitation scene with Karen is a good example of um, how to use kids in a movie versus how not to use children in a movie. So um, like, there's that old thing where you should never work with animals or children. And uh, uh, a lot of directors actually keep to that. Uh, they, they think it's good, sensible advice. Uh, but... Um, the fact is, I, I think kids are used effectively when they when they are just sort of on somebody's lap as something trem tremendous happens, you know, or something scary happens, you know. Um, and these kids, in a moment, they're each going to have a kid in their lap as this scene plays out and as they're talking about some very adult matters uh, and matters of life and death and the stakes for them as characters and, and the stakes for many people uh, are, you know, the, not just for them, but the welfare of their family, the welfare of those children. So to have their children in their lap as they have the conversation, as opposed to cutting to the child crying in the middle of their conversation or something, just having the kids sort of present uh, in this way is what does the trick you know the, the the stakes are literally in their lap and henry uh, uh leota has a couple of very important um details that he, he um, or, or plot points that he he says here one is is that he explains um why karen explains to the audience why karen isn't being helped uh on the outside um there isn't being helped more by the family it's because it's it's different when you go away to prison and now now we're kind of on our own, and um, he even makes reference to uh, not being discovered about uh, the drugs by his um, by Polly, and so she kind of brokers a deal by um, insisting that he. Uh, oh, there you have the four years later. I guess he did four years. Where did I get six months? Maybe that was another thing. Um, I apologize for the factual inaccuracy there but maybe that was another thing that he did six months for but uh, obviously he was, it was a four-year bid um, I 
I wanted to mention um, Nicholas Pileggi and his book. Um, Scorsese actually approached Pileggi after, and he would work with Pileggi again on Casino. That time, the movie actually was written, I think, simultaneously with the book or came out before the book actually did. But um, Pileggi approached... Um, uh, was approached by Scorsese to to make Goodfellas, uh, to make Wise Guy into a movie. And as I said, Scor- uh, uh, Nick Pileggi, um, I, I believe he was married to uh, the late Nora Ephron. Uh, as I said, Nick Pileggi, very good true crime writer, kind of has a journalistic approach. Um, uh, not a lot of overt editorializing, just the facts. He, he's very good at just setting a, a scene and conveying um, uh, conveying narrative um, uh, heft with um, simple declarative sentences and um, the book Goodfellas is very vi- or the book uh, Wise Guy is very vivid in that way just real quick um, this what Pauly is admonishing Henry for here is is a very very important plot point um, not just that he's warning him to not get involved with drug selling or uh, on the outside, but um, also the fact that he, we get a sense of the ethos of the mafia. They, the, this idea that is in a lot of movies that you don't want to get in, it's in the Godfather. You don't want to get in drug involved with drugs. It's all mandatory sentences, and it's very difficult to play up. It's more difficult to pay off the authorities for drug offenses. And, um, and it's kind of bad stuff, you know, it's, it's a bad business to be in a dangerous business to be in. Um, and so Paulie fears those mandatory sentences and is admonishing his guy here to stay away from that stuff. That smack (laughs) that he just gave him. Um, but the, the, the ethos of, of the mafia that I don't care what you did in prison in prison. It's about survival, but out here it's about not going to prison. We cut directly as if and and if for the people who didn't catch it uh, that Henry is disobeying already disobeying Polly. We cut immediately to his girlfriend Sandy mixing uh, mixing the drugs. Um, and Henry's uh, the Leota voiceover lets us know that um, it's an extremely lucrative business and that he loops in his mentor and his friend Tommy because business was so so good anyway Pileggi's um, book does kind of just follow a straight chronology and I just I I just want to say I think it's so great the way that um, Martin Scorsese chose certain details from the book and and um, certain even certain things that um henry says in the book uh to include in the voiceover um to just create the movie he did you wouldn't think goodfellas would be the movie that came from wise guy you would think it would be a much i almost want to say a much less ambitious movie a much smaller story but uh, with scorsese it's such a big sprawling ambitious um uh, project, Goodfellas. And you wouldn't think it would come from this modest um, sort of Bildung's Roman uh, kind of thing that the book Wise Guy is. Um, and uh, t- just to illustrate that point, 
um, there are a couple points I made there. Let me just read to you the um, first paragraph of Pelegi's Wise Guy. And I think you'll notice that certain details are um, uh, were sort of cherry-picked. And, and I think, um, you know, screenwriters who adapt... Um, who adapt from books and, and novels and uh, often the bad ones uh, really it, it's a devil in the details kind of thing I find like uh, I notice that the bad ones kind of just pick the wrong details or uh, you know you, you have to decide where you're going to depart from the book and where you're going to stay true to the book and good screenwriters um, know where they're going to stick to the book there's Samuel L. Jackson playing Stax Edwards as we meet all the guys who are going to take part in the Lufthansa heist. Now, we don't actually see them doing their jobs. You know, it's a Johnny Roast Beef's going to do this, this one's going to do this. We don't actually see them doing it. Um, it's sort of more interesting that we're being reintroduced to them or, or we're being told what each one's going to do. It, it's a, it's another good screenwriting thing. You know, you just you just tell them that they're going to do stuff and, and uh, we don't have to see them do it or especially if it's um, if we see whatever it effectuates. But anyway, um, listen to the first paragraph of Wise Guy and see if you can um, spot the, um, the very well-done uh, cherry-picking, as I said. Uh, chapter 1 begins, quote, Henry Hill was introduced to life in the mob almost by accident in 1995, 19, <laughs> in 1955 when he was 11 years old. He wandered into a drab paint-flecked cab stand at 391 Pine Street near Pitkin Avenue in the Brownsville, East New York section of Brooklyn, looking for a part-time after-school job. The one-story storefront cab stand and dispatch office was directly across the street from where he lived with his mother, father, four older sisters, and two brothers. And Henry had been intrigued by the place almost as far back as he could remember. Even before he went to work there, Henry had seen the long black Cadillacs and Lincolns glide into the block. He had watched the expressionless faces of the, of the cab stand visitors, and he always remembered their huge, wide coats. Some of the visitors were so large that when they hauled themselves out of the cars, the vehicles rose by inches. He saw glittering rings and jewel-studded belt buckles, and thick gold wristbands holding wafer-thin platinum watches. That's the first, uh, end quote, that's the first paragraph of, uh, of Pelegi's book. And, you know, the, the cars lifting by inches, the, the wide lapels on the coats of the men. Um, I mean, uh, what Pelegi's trying to do in the book is describe what it was that first seduced Henry about living the life of a gangster and the movie does the same thing but it does it in sort of a a more a more um, uh, visually uh, it does it in a visually complicated way where we're moving back and forth in time we're getting all this information thrown at us and so to illustrate the point of say the first chapter of wise guy you know, Scorsese picks the detail about the car, picks certain things, and I don't know. I, I think uh, I think it's pretty. Uh, I hope it's obvious um, 
to people how difficult it is to adapt things for the screen. That That's just why I'm so um, making such a big deal out of that. I, I really think it's difficult. And uh, I really think this is a successful one. The guy who plays Johnny Roast Beef is uh, an actor I've seen before. And I don't recall his name, but I've seen him in other mafia movies, frankly. So this is the part... where I how to describe it I mean this is the part where the Lufthansa the the fallout from Lufthansa the Lufthansa heist begins to spiral out of control and the De Niro character is realizing that he can't keep people in line the way he needs to that that there's there's a discipline problem they're not just have any conspicuous spending and and yet you have it, it plays as a comedic scene you know you have them walking in with this new stuff and and jimmy immediately rips the coats off their wives and and such like it's one of those weird scorsese scenes that you know de niro's not playing for laughs here obviously he's playing it dead straight but um It, it's it's one of the funnier scenes to me because <laughs> Lana Douglas. I mean, just those little ironies. You know, if I look at anyone else, he'll kill me. Evidently, um, as we watch Maury um, further getting under the skin of, of Jimmy, um, evidently, if you read um, the IMDb pages for Goodfellas, there's a lot of cool facts, and, and uh, apparently uh, one of them is that uh, there's 296 uses of the word fuck in the movie, and, and one half of them are said by Pesci. Which is pretty, uh, pretty hard to believe, actually. Um, but another thing I learned that I didn't know, as much as I've um, liked this movie over the years, uh, one thing that I didn't know was that the studio didn't want Leota, uh, as we see him hugging uh, De Niro there uh, in this back room. Leota at the time had done uh, a movie called uh, Something Wild uh, uh, with Jeff Daniels and and um, he was kind of um, for a couple years in the mid 80s he was one of the um, up and coming kind of young actors that people um, you knew people uh, were uh, whether it was critics or movie lovers, and you knew they knew what they were talking about if they if if the subject of uh, hot young actors came up or or um, young actors that are worth being excited about, you know if they said a name like um, Robert Downey Jr. or uh, or Ray Liotta or uh, 
and there are actually uh, quite a few uh, uh, women actors at, at the time. Um, uh, y- you knew they knew what they were talking about if, if they said those kinds of things. Um, and so he was kind of the it guy. And yet the, st- the studio uh, Warner's... Um, uh, evidently there was a long audition process and they made him read a lot and um, at a certain point Leota probably knowing that he was right for the part um, insisted uh, or thrust himself upon um, uh, the producers and, and um, lobbied for the role uh, uh, to be given the role and um, it's hard to believe now because he's um, gone on to be so impressive and so many things, but um, I never found out. I cruised around online a little bit, read production notes. I n- never found out who they did, you know, who who th- who they would have preferred. Um, it seems to me, you know, that the, there's a there's a youth a youthful exuberance uh, and uh, a sort of um, a boyishness that the Henry character, as presented in Goodfellas, needs to have, right? Um, but I think there's that. I hate. And people use the word edge, um, but instead there's, uh, but but I'm going to use it. Um, but but the he needs to have an edge too. He needs to have a danger to him, and um, and it's good that they didn't cast a star, someone who at the time was a, a star, because I think that just it's it's you know the way you use movie stars is often um, <laughs> it's a funny thing to say. I actually think movie stars are used uh, too liberally and cast in roles. You know, I mean, it's so interesting when you have someone who's kind of up and coming like this play, play essentially the lead here. I mean, this is Leota's movie. Now, this period in the movie where we find out that um, they're sort of opening the books, so to speak, and the Pesci character is going to get made, um, and coming up, we'll, we'll learn a couple of things. I, um, one of the things, you know, if you read a lot of scripts that are submitted or, or, um, by sort of, um, uh, you know, emerging screenwriters, let's say, um, one of the tropes or, um, hackneyed things that gets used over and over is the voiceover. And, um, uh, I think it's used to perfection here, but uh, I think one of the ways voiceover kind of gets a bad rap because it, it lets you do so many great things. Uh, and one of them is teach the audience things so that what they're seeing makes sense to them in a way that the characters in the moment of the movie can't explain. And, and so Leota's voiceover is going to teach us a lot about this whole thing of being made and, um, he, he will literally just tell the audience it's um in a way it's hack screenwriting and in a way it's it's great screenwriting uh i say it's great screenwriting because it's used sparingly and just right and it works um but what he explains i, I i'm he explains it really succinctly too and i'm having trouble uh, putting it into words what he explains is that the reason he can't be made a maid person in the family is uh, because he has Irish ancestry. He's half Irish. Tommy is not, and he could trace all his ancestors, as the Leota voiceover says, to the old country. 
And so that allows him to be made. And we even hear that reinforced there with Maury's line, half Mick, half Guinea. Um, now that, that in the book, wise guy, that's a big moment, or that's a big uh, plot point um, also because uh, as a crew and as gangsters, they're allowed to get away with stuff that the Sicilians, full-blooded Sicilians, can't. Uh, so it's a, a liability, a gift and a curse, you might say. This is the moment... Um, I actually saw Nora Ephron um, interviewed, and she cites this moment. Um, she was describing her experience making uh, De Niro's really good there. Um, she describes that moment that just passed with um, De Niro as um, having taught her a lot about making movies. Uh, it's the moment, uh, it's a wordless moment, and it's the moment where she feels the audience is clear that Jimmy might might try to kill uh, not just these other people who are part of the heist, but but Henry too. And it's that in that quiet little moment, and it's something in De Niro's eyes that is just um, blood chilling. Uh, I always thought that was a good point Efron made. Um, now, of course, she's biased. Her husband wrote the movie, but um, uh, it's really great. I, I think it's a really great. Uh, point because there is a lot to learn there just about the the wordlessness of it and um, the way um, uh, ominous things are, are suggested at just by the performances you know uh, I, I I'd never able to decide is is this a movie that is effect as effective as it is because of the performances or because of the editing Um. You know, the, the correct responses are those my only choices, right? But um, uh, obviously, it's 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 a movie. It's all of these various things coming together. Once again, the reoccurring thing here of uh, Pesci telling a joke, uh, entertaining people, and actually, in a perhaps com the the lightheartedness compels uh, Jimmy to reconsider the murder that they were about to engage in. You know, I I go back and forth about that, though. You know, I, on the one hand, I think performances make movies, but um, the way we experience a story has to do with the way it's edited. And generally, I've been of a mind that... Um, let me see. I'm, I'm being a little... Uh, tedious here because I I, I want to I've never really thought to answer this question in a way that uh, you know while I'm while I'm literally considering the movie and it, it seems like you know a movie that's badly acted can still be watchable <laughs> but a movie that's badly edited might not be watchable or comprehensible and I, I think Maybe I should revise the the whole performances make movies. I, I think I think performances sell the story. They sell you know if it's a a story that's steeped in realism, gritty realism like this one, then um, the performance and the the art direction and stuff uh, uh, really sells us on the reality of the story and 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 g clears the brush so uh, that story can have an impact on us. I love this this um this uh 
reoccurring thing of Carbone not not getting the joke. Uh, uh, there'll be a thing. Uh, there was that thing earlier with them um, when they killed Stax. So, uh, he didn't know that he was joking about the coffee. You know, here's a, another instance of handheld uh, stuff that helps underscore the frenzy that um, Maury's wife is in. I don't know. I think it's the, uh, I think the editing is always going to be more important, but you know, the, when the performances are really great, it can sell it. It just sells you on the reality of the movie. One of my favorite little details that the movie includes is that, that moment there where, um, you know, these guys are constantly surveilled and it's an open secret that they're surveilled by these feds or whatever. And, um, they, they come out of that diner and, and, um, De Niro knocks knocks on the window and says, "Come on, wake up, let's go." Um, again, Scorsese with the kids. These kids are more consistent with the way he's done. I mean, he's done this scene so many times in his movies. Eh? Perhaps you could say that's another Persian flaw. Well, it wouldn't be a Persian flaw if there's more than one, right? But um, perhaps perhaps that's something that we're a little sick of in the in the great masters' work, right? Um, this idea of this kids, you know. Um, uh, stumbling upon the bodies here. I'm, uh, it was just, uh, uh, went, uh, sorry, just there. I was looking to see which character, um, I, I'd always remembered this guy. One of the characters is found in the, um, garbage but it looks like um what does that say frenchy but it looks like joe buddha looks like the other guy that they call joe buddha now here's a nice sort of crane um uh crane um dolly shot or, or it's not a dolly it's a it's a crane to um a steady cam shot and it's the reversal or the opposite of what scorsese does in raging bull where he has that long tracking shot from the dressing room to the ring, and then the Steadicam operator actually stands on a, a crane, uh, gets on a crane while the shot's happening, and then the crane lifts him up. Here we have that in reverse, where we the Steadicam operator was on the crane. The crane is sort of, it's sort of like um, out of touch of evil or something. Uh, the crane lowers into this... Uh, you know, space where all the cars are, the truck is there, and then the crane lowers to the same level as the uh, as the truck. Steady cam operator gets off the train, a uh, crane, and walks into the into the truck. Yeah, that's right. Because in Raging Bull, he he starts not on the crane and then gets on it. Here, he gets off it. Now, I, uh, sorry, I just, just, um, 
making sure you can hear me on this mic. I um, thought that this was the end of the movie uh, the first time I saw it. No. It's one of those movies like, um, oh, what's a movie that's like this? Um, a movie where like the last 40, 45 minutes, every scene could have been the last scene. You know, Scorsese's never been the best director with respect to endings and giving his movies the most um, elegant and, and natural feeling endings. Um, some people are really good at that. Some people are not. And Scorsese is sort of um, not. <laughs> it's probably one of the things he's not very good at is making those endings seem natural. But here, I mean, this scene where Pesci is shot, spoiler, um, this could be the last scene of the film. You know, you could roll credits after this. The scene that comes after, you know, almost every scene here as we sort of approach the home stretch, um, almost every scene could be the last scene. You know, you could end with De Niro in the phone booth. You know, I mean, it would be kind of a uh, avant-garde kind of ending, but but uh, the, what I'm saying is there's no reason narratively why some of these moments, some of these story beats couldn't be the ending because... Um, There, there, there's, you know, this is Henry's story, but there are so many other characters, so many narrative strands that we care about that there are just um, any number of ways to end this movie, to, to um, have some kind of feeling of resolution uh, or, or uh, non-resolution that, that could serve as an ending. And De Niro's very good here. First anger, then... Crying, rage, acceptance. How does it go? <laughs> I think Leota's very good here because at this moment in the in our story, he has to play. He's nervous that Jimmy's going to kill him, but he's also not sure I mean he's probably not sure what happened to Tommy you know did did Jimmy help kill I mean he, he he's so you know he plays it very awkwardly there just in that little uh, we have it again here that this moment uh with De Niro uh, you know remember that the Jimmy Conway character is his mentor of of, of a kind so doesn't really know what to say awkward Worried that he might be next. There's another thing that um, is true that really happened, but um, it's just in so many movies that I'm like, why, you know, the idea of not being able to have an open casket because they shot him in the face, you know, that's, it's just, it's probably true. It's in so many movies. So PTA replicates this in in Boogie Nights with his his home stretch of um, a, a drug fueled frenzy, going from place to place. The um, the nervous tension of it um, uh, is really that that helicopter, and the 
the sort of knowledge because of the tone of the films had at this time, the sort of knowledge that, that we have instinctively that there's no way for this for this day to end well. And uh, this is the part of the movie where you have to give it up for Thelma Schoonmaker. Uh, my understanding is that she was uh, integral to um, the way Scorsese um, ultimately decided to shape this sort of uh, home stretch of the movie. Um, the way um, the style of the movie famously changes. Uh, it's not just that, but the, the way it's cut together is, is um, fast-paced in a way that it, it wasn't before. There's a, the nervousness creates a uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of, um, I'll try to point out a couple, but there's a lot of sort of non sequitur cuttings happening here that are, um, that are just gorgeous and, um, things all of a sudden this character who's been powerful and in control, you know, think of the scene earlier where he beats up that guy in the driveway, pistol whips him. This has been a guy who's in control, powerful, and now he can't even drive down the highway without this happening. You see that? I mean, this is this is uh, the mummy unraveling here, <laughs> and we have this detail of the brother, um, the real. Uh, and if you read the book, Wise Guy, I do recommend it. It's a great book. We don't have a lot of color in the movie, but I, I like that they got a, a non-white actor to play the doctor, at least. Um, you know, they just, uh, I mean, there's so many movies, there's just all white people and I don't know. It's just not, that's not the world I walk around in. I, you know, um, but anyway, if you read the book, um, wise guy, and I certainly recommend reading it, uh, it's a great book. You learn about, uh, a lot about Henry that's just not in the movie because it doesn't, I guess it doesn't tie to anything that, that the movie is interested in. Um, for example, um, you have this brother, uh, Henry's real brother. Uh, well, the part of the book I read from revealed that he had, you know, four sisters and he had this brother who was disabled. Now, the, the thing about disabled is, is um, in the movie, um, uh, Henry even says that that's one of the reasons his father was ever pissed off, uh, always uh, upset, is because his brother was in a wheelchair. Um, but evidently the real Henry Hill, um, was quite a cook as we see him with the veal cutlets here or, or making meatballs, I guess. Um, and something that's not in the movie is, uh, the time he spent, um, uh, in the army, I think on his own commentary on the film, if you have the special edition, uh, DVD or Blu-ray, you'll have a couple of commentaries on there. One is one of those um, pastiche commentaries that they cut together with, from interviews with the cast and crew and director. And um, the other is Henry Hill and Ed McDonald, who is uh, the USA, the U.S. attorney, uh, I believe, uh, who, who um, prosecuted um, people in the Gambino crime family and and prosecuted, uh, Henry would have been in the Lucchese crime family. I think he prosecuted a lot of, um, probably from all the five families. Um, what were the five families? Jeez. In real life, uh, in The Godfather, they're not the ones in real life. In real life, it's like Colombo, Genovese, uh, 
Gambino, Bonanno, blah, 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 blah. But yeah, he, he was in the 82nd Airborne. I think he I think he trained in Fort Bragg. I think he was in the Army or... or is that the Army? Or, uh, he did like a full four years or three years or something. Um, and the movie just doesn't give it to us um, because it kind of even... Oh, that that's what I was going to say. In his own commentary on the film, uh, Ed McDonald... The prosecutor asks him about it and says, oh, you spent time with Uncle Sam, didn't you? And and Hill says, uh, uh, he's kind of just matter of fact about it. He says, yeah, yeah, I was a paratrooper or something like that and blah, blah, blah. And and it, it's just kind of a shrug like, uh, oh, well, that happened. And uh, uh, that's how the military is for some people. They just kind of do their time and then, and then uh, become uh, a gangster or something. This kind of echoes the... Um, the good fella, or, or uh, the uh, taxi driver, um, where Bickle is. <laughs> I love it. You want to see helicopters? I'll show you how. Um, where Travis Bickle is in the hotel room buying uh, guns from that very strange guy who says, "Hey, hey I don't just sell guns. You want a car? You want a? You want hookers? I think he he lists all kinds of stuff as as they're parting." The editing is is not as big a, a change as, as this sort of camera movement um, of this stretch in the movie. Michael Ballhouse's camera, um, you know, before the the you know Scorsese's camera is always moving, but but, but before it was moving um, a, a little more. Uh, like someone who's moving a camera, making a movie, would move it. You know, it was clearly sliding gracefully on a dolly. It was clearly panning around uh, in a dialogue scene. Um, here, it's it's meant to feel handheld. It's meant to feel like someone who is nervous operating a camera. Um, and we get we get totally wrapped up in Henry's predicament here um i mean we just hate this the the actor here is welker white i think and uh uh yes that's it and she plays lois bird this babysitter who was helping henry and um we get so mad at her because at this point we're rooting for henry i mean he's had his so much save the cat moments and, and so many of them and and you know just the thing with the brother further endears us to him and so we're kind of rooting for him to to get through this day, and we get so mad at at um, at Lois, the babysitter, for not calling from an outside line, um, as she was as she was instructed. What you don't learn, and what I think is in the book, uh, is that uh, Henry was also um, having an affair with the, the babysitter, and uh, maybe they shot scenes that. Or, or content in the movie that weren't used that that suggest that or, or that uh, that tell us that but in the movie there's this um he has this uh you know clearly um there's animosity or or, or um, you know he has frustration with her uh not just over the phone but over the the lucky hat that she forgot and 
and uh, and so that frustration is is actually uh, in real life and was actually a lover's quarrel and so the actors Leota and uh, this uh, actor Welker, Welker White probably um, uh, you know orchestrated their performances to um, appreciate the fact uh, that these two characters are actually also having an affair which explains a lot of the stuff in the movie that you know his frustration with her is is, is uh, what I mean to say there you know it explains <laughs> this kind of thing you know uh, and her her uh, argument is so terrible that she makes you know uh, she has this this inane superstition about a hat uh, that she can't fly without the hat. She's 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 persuaded herself that she can't fly without a hat, and um, just absolutely ridiculous. One of my favorite little um bits of voiceover here. Now, someone. If I get the name of that gun wrong, someone who knows about guns would know. But um, what is that? Like a nine millimeter? But um, yeah, see, that's my favorite piece of voiceover in the movie. If they had been wise guys, you know, I would have already been dead. Uh, only cops talk like that. And I think that goes to what this movie is. Um, what I spoke about uh, right at the outset. What this movie is trying to do vis-a-vis -vis the, the typical mafia movie. Um, you know, the romantic movie, the movie where uh, Edward G. Robinson points a Tommy gun at someone and says, stick him up, see? Uh, freeze. Um, people talk that way in the movies, and it's just so great that when the, the cop does that, Henry says, only cops talk that way. If it had been a real... Essentially saying, if it had been a real gangster... There would be no, um, you know, no um, quotable moment, right? There would be no cool, cool thing that you say, right? You're just fucking dead. And that's his life. And, um, and I think what Scorsese is sort of moving toward here, and I, again, I love that the movie does it but doesn't moralize about it, is that... Um, Look, this is what it really looks like. This is this. I mean, Leota. This whole period in the movie is is strung out and looks horrible. And um, uh, w as soon as he gets within six inches of a doctor, the doctor says, "You look like crap. I gotta check you out." You know, I mean, and look at this orange jumpsuit he's in here, and in, in another one of those jailhouse scenes. I mean, um. This is Scorsese telling us, I think, that the the reality of his of crime, a, a, a life of crime lived this way, is this. You know, this this um, walk of shame he's doing here. This voiceover that tells us that uh, his in laws mortgage their house to bail his his ass out of jail. It's almost like you can um, think of the movie in two halves. The half of the movie that um, 
is almost dangling that romanticized notion of uh, gangsters in front of us like uh, you have those Copacabana scenes and the the long tracking shot the steady cam shot um, you have Henry as a kid at the beginning you know even when someone was shot that guy whose hand was shot at the beginning uh, and Henry brings the aprons you know even that is kind of uh, uh, we're still able to hold on to our, our fantasies of uh, uh, or operatic notions about uh, organized crime uh, but um, but this half of the movie is is literally I think undermining the the first half the, the, the some of that tone you know Bracco is very good here and people do that when they're having these very intense dramatic moments they drop to their knees before the other person I've seen that um I wonder why he's so sure they wouldn't have found it. Maybe they figured that um, it was all at the girlfriend's house at Sandy's. You know, they had all the equipment from there. And oh, that shirt he's wearing is really 1980. <laughs> we never needed that title card. Uh, that said uh, May 11th, 1980. I mean, uh, we just need to look at that shirt. Yeah, I really think this half of the movie is is the um, the smack, like the smack Polly gives gives uh, Henry. Right? It's the it's the smack we needed. It's the filmmaker saying, uh, um, "That isn't it. That isn't what it is." Um, look. This is what it is. One thing I wrote back to um, Glenn, the guy who emails me. Hang on a second here. Uh, I know you're probably listening, Glenn, uh, but I, as I emailed you, um, we were talking about Goodfellas, and he, he said that, um, well, w well, one of the points I made was that um, all of the story elements and all of the directorial choices and all of the um, sort of things the movie is doing here are all working and are working in a in a in a really um, effective way um, and so the movie reaches a point coming up here where it knows it's, I feel like uh, it's that thing people say, uh, many geniuses uh, know their geniuses and, and, and uh, do things uh, with that knowledge. And so it, their art maybe has a, a whole different quality to it because they um, have such command and, and such um, self-awareness of their skills. Um and I think, you know, maybe there's something to that because um, I think the movie knows that it's making us care deeply and it's engrossing us and that um, this frenzied uh, uh, pacing and this going back and forth in time and uh, all these characters, all these story elements, all, you know, this complicated plot 
it knows that it's working and so it knows that it's working so well that it it gets to a point close to the end of the movie where it could have done just about anything and we'll see it coming up here in a couple minutes where it'll be a courtroom scene uh, like ones we've had earlier in the movie uh, where uh, it'll be the scene uh, where Leota uh, Hill is fingering um, his associates in the mob. He's fingering Jimmy and he's fingering uh, Paul, Paulie. Uh, he's, he's ratting them out. It's the moment where he, he testifies to that effect in court. And it's, we don't get much of the trial. We don't get much of the testimony. It, the movie doesn't become a courtroom drama. It just takes us there and takes us out. It, it, it keeps that fast pace, um, um, here to there, here to there quality. And it's working so well. This is what I wrote to Glenn. At that moment, the movie's working so well that Scorsese knew he could do just about anything and he'd have us hooked. And so what happens is the fourth wall is just torn down all of a sudden. Um, you know, we've had voiceover before, but we've never had that kind of Wayne's World um, thing where a character is talking directly to the camera, directly to the audience, the people who are watching this screen, you know, uh, like uh, Edward Murrow, you know, just talking directly to the people in their chairs. And it's, th oh, this is the string, the street in Jersey. I think I know where that is. Um, it's, it's working so well that the fourth wall can totally be demolished and a character can start you know, I mean, I mean, it, it, to appreciate that fully, you have to realize how badly that could have gone and how much that could have not worked. You know, all of a sudden, when you reach the climax of your movie, uh, and I do think the climax of the movie is where he, where he becomes a rat, where uh, it's not just his life is out of control. Now he, that's the real point of no return. Um, the moment where, or perhaps it's the moment where he decides to do that, but that moment in court is the climax, and the movie knows it's working so well that it knows that it can break the fourth wall, have the character talk directly, you know, get up out of the chair as if he's not in court, walk and talk directly to the camera, and we just think nothing of it. People watching the movie go, they don't go, hey, what is this? You know, because if that goes wrong, people go, hey, what is this? What? What, well, we're talking to the camera now. What in the boy? This takes me out of the movie. I've never heard anyone say that that takes them out of the movie. Which, when you think about it, think about it in the abstract. A, a character at, at the near at or near the climax gets up out of his chair and starts talking to the audience. That's not supposed to work, no matter how good the movie is. And I've never heard anyone say, boy, that was dumb. That took me out. I mean, it just, and, and uh, perhaps it is the performance. Because Leota is sort of especially good there. He has this kind of confidence and ease with that. He doesn't, um, the performance doesn't make a big deal of it. You know, he, he has this um, calm and, and um, uh, casualness to it. Um and uh, I would, would invite you, it's widely available online. Uh, I'd invite you to read the screenplay, uh, the shooting script, the final script that they had after their 12 drafts. 
and uh, look at um, look at how you know read the couple pages before it, the couple pages after it, that how that moment um, reads on the page. Uh, it's the kind of thing that you read in a script and you go, "Are you kidding? Oh, this is gonna work. You're gonna do that. You're gonna shoot that, and you're gonna cut that into the movie." No, no, no. That's not going to work. Um, it works. And I'm still... You know what? Of all the things that impress me about uh, this movie, that's the big one. As we see uh, that freeze frame and Jimmy... Jimmy had never asked me to wax him, buddy, and now he's... And the last time Henry went to Florida, it didn't knew it didn't go so well, right? I think the the real life chronology is being played with a little bit here for dramatic effect, um, uh, because this is sort of supposed to be the inciting incident just before Henry flips, as we see him here in the prosecutor's office, or I believe this would this be the U.S. attorney's? It would probably be the federal prosecutor's office, and that man who is with him there as. Um, Lorraine Bracco is doing kind of a, a Natalie Wood uh, splendor in the grass kind of dress there. Um, the the uh, man, Ed McDonald, who prosecuted uh, these cases for the federal government, uh, that's him um, uh, playing himself there. And uh, once again, you know, the real person kind of has a... Uh, Oh, I hate I hate to use the word gravitas, but yeah, it kind of has just a. Um, I think I mentioned this in uh, the social network comedy. You know, real lawyers. Um, you know, are very good at at being calm like this and and not um, saying things matter of factly and um, you know saying things. Uh, in a monotone and not drawing attention, you know, they're, they're very good at um, being inconspicuous uh, rhetorically, if that makes any sense. Obviously, they're very good at being rhetorically um, effective and, and uh, uh, crafting language in a courtroom, uh, making an argument and so forth. But um, I find good lawyers often have to be um, nonchalant and, and, and just poker-faced when they relate to people. And... Um, the fact that this guy is the real guy, I think he just embodies that in a way where if you cast an actor, yeah. Well, I made that point in the social network comedy uh, commentary. Well, see what I mean, like in this, in what in the dialogue you're getting here, it says um, the the point where he says, um, "I don't care about um, you or what you do. I care about Henry. I care about him." The guy giving the testimony, and um, it's he says it with equanimity you know he says it with um he doesn't make a sad face i'm chagrined i'm sorry to be saying this he it's just the plain reality uh and i think the story at this point needs that it needs someone who's just saying you know this is the plain reality of it now here comes our big moment um and watch what the camera is doing here too i think the camera is priming us for it uh, you know, they shot probably whole sequences of this testimony. and But, um, you know, this is not shot like most courtrooms 
are shot in movies. We start behind Henry and then it swirls around to get him finger pointing the finger. Now this is shot like a typical courtroom drama where we're zooming in on De Niro and, and this is kind of, uh, you know, this straight ahead thing is kind of, but um, the sort of choreography of the camera is going to be sort of big here because it, it lets us know that something is uh, a little off about this scene. And so yeah, maybe maybe it's subliminal, but um, when he gets up out of that chair, I mean, the, the movie's just running on all cylinders because it's it's not supposed to work. I don't think this shot of De Niro's, um, uh, Jimmy Conway's wife, you know, we, we zoom over his shoulder to see that shot of uh, his wife. They probably shot scenes, more scenes with his wife and the couples relating to each other uh, that were cut because... Uh, I don't think that works. I don't think, you know, I, I, I honestly, I don't care about his wife. I care about the relationship between him and, and Henry and Paulie and Henry. I don't care about his wife at that point. So there you go. Now, here it is. Look at this. He gets off. He's walking toward the, this is, um, uh, I love Leota here. I, I mean, I, I always loved him after they did this. Oh, it's really something, isn't it? I can't uh, uh, emphasize enough how that shouldn't work, how that's not supposed to work. And so hitting rock bottom is not being in a dark alley somewhere or being homeless. Hitting rock bottom is living in this nice suburban house and having that dainty little bathrobe and picking up your... Now, see that shot there? That's important. I'll come back to it. But that's his bottom. That's his, you know, that's being a loser. Um, and, and that's what the movie's about. And then we get this text at the end that lets us know, you know, what happened to Henry. But that's not, certainly not the end of it. <laughs> he had uh, a long life after that, uh, after this movie came out. Um, I think he left the witness protection program or was forced to leave pursuant to activities related to the uh, um, press junkets for this movie. Um, but I'm not sure how accurate that is. But anyway, you notice that shot there um, as we watch our credits. Um, you notice that shot there with, um, it goes from Henry looking at camera. Uh, again, at his rock bottom, living in some anonymous suburb in the pr in the program, uh, having having ratted out his friends, having disobeyed that first rule that he was given the first time he was arrested. You, you never rat on your friends. Um, it cuts from him looking at the camera to, of all people, and we uh, there you see um, Saul Bass did the um, this very um, unadorned. Uh, and nicely styled um, credit sequences. But um, it cuts from that to, of all people, uh, the Tommy character, uh, the Pesci character, shooting a gun with a sort of a fedora hat on. And it's, it's what is it? It's a stylized, romantic, uh, Jimmy Cagney version of... Uh, the mafia gangster but at the time we get that we already know what ha what became of that character you know he he met his demise uh 
um, in a very brutal way. And we see that that, that romantic notion has been completely torn down. We've had it, we, we've been disabused of it um, because we've seen what it really is. Uh, so fantasy and reality, um, uh, you know, romanticized versions and gritty versions. Um, this is, this, this changed um, mafia movies uh, uh, in a way. Uh, uh, Goodfellas did because uh, you couldn't get away with that as much anymore. Um, um, it's not. I mean, you couldn't get away with the stereotyped, uh, the stereotyped uh, gangster anymore. And so when when Pesci shoots that gun at the camera at the end, there, he's um, it, it, there's an absurdity to it. He's he's uh, perhaps you could say he's literally shooting down um, those old romanticized notions, and um, it is. Um, it is not something to uh, to celebrate or to romanticize, because uh, when you romanticize it, you forget, you know, all the. It's almost like it undermines the the fact that there are negative aspects to it. I think that's what the movie's about. Uh, I've heard someone say that Goodfellas is one of those movies that it's just about what it's about. It just it's just telling a good story and. No, I, again, I, I don't think it moralizes about it, but I think it's, I think the point, if you want to put too fine a point on it, I think the point of Scorsese's movie is that, um, you know, something that he's always done in his movies, uh, even with violence, you know, real life violence is not what you see in the movies. You know, he's, he's one of the great meta, um, directors who kind of get off on the meta aspects of cinema and how cinema affects affect us and um so much so many of his movies are about saying that what you see in the movies is not real here's something that's uh resembles what it's really like and isn't it gross and isn't it awful and isn't this a a tragic and um uh story and and uh aren't these people that you don't want to be like? Um, and I, so I think that's what he's, uh, the, the territory that he's um, operating in here. But uh, it is a movie that uh, I think uh, is close to, uh, as close to perfect as you can get uh, with modern movies. I, I obviously uh, think highly of it, and I, um, I think it deserves every, uh, every accolade it's ever gotten. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you around next time.